We're in 2 Samuel chapter 21. 2 Samuel 21. Um, and we're talking about David's strength from God this morning, the idea that, that God provides strength to his king. And we've been looking at um, this last section in 2 Samuel, which is kind of three chapters, or four chapters, 21, 22, 23, and 24, and how they, they're all kind of flowing out of 1 Samuel 2.10, and I'll just read that for you. It says, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed, in order that the adversaries of the Lord shall be broken to pieces. Against them he will thunder in heaven. And so we have... Two stories at the end of, of 2 Samuel that deal with God's judgment. Two stories that deal, in a sense, with God giving strength to his king. And two stories talking about being God's anointed, uh, being exalted. And uh, so we're looking this morning, particularly those two stories about giving strength to God's king. And, and the idea of, of strength is an interesting concept. I think of, uh, uh, in popular cultures, there's... Uh, there's the Avengers, right, where, uh, where you have the I am inevitable kind of concept, right? Where like, oh, you know, this is just going to happen, you know, and, and I, I, what I want is going to happen, and that kind of strength, that kind of power. Then you, you, have, uh, you have the Olympics, right? Um, I was, uh, you have, I don't know if you've watched some of the Olympics over the last couple of weeks. Obviously, it's drawing to a close now, but just to see the, the, the endurance, the, the strength of endurance, right, going an extra year between Olympics, uh, the, what, what people took to do it, or, or just even sheer human strength. I was watching the, the Indian uh, journalists uh, this morning talk about uh, the guy who won the javelin, so it was the only gold in, in the Tokyo Olympics for India, and it was men's javelin. And this guy literally hurled the javelin 85 meters through the air. Okay, I watched the, the ladies' javelin. I, I watched that competition. They got, they got 65 meters or 64 meters through the air. So he threw it 20 meters further through the air. And... Uh, and nobody else, you know, is like, like, it's like competition's done. Basically, after a second throw, the competition was done because he'd thrown it so far. And, and that kind of strength involved in just, you know, literally hurling things through the air, you know. Of course, we have our own gold medalist in our church this morning, right? Because Chris, Pastor Chris, he, he won his jujitsu tournament this weekend, and he got the gold medal for that. So good job, Chris. Good job. Yes. I do want to bring up uh, that in two weeks we're having an installation service for, for Pastor Chris and Alicia. Uh, we weren't able to do that with COVID, obviously. They got here kind of right, things were uh, right about this time last year, and it was like, this isn't a great time. But now that overall COVID, uh, the restrictions of COVID are taken care of, uh, his pastor from uh, around Atlanta, Georgia, is going to fly in and be with us for that weekend and share with us from God's Word, and we're going to have the chance to just pray over Chris and Alicia and encourage them as they kind of get involved in the work here. I'm really grateful for both of them being here and their family. And so, um, so th these kinds of strengths uh, are different kinds of strengths from God. And when, when you hear that God is going to give strength to his king, maybe you're thinking, okay, he's just going to be this superhuman guy, right? You know, this, this, this Thor, right, that can just take on anything and, and do any, any physical task. 
that comes his way. And yet, you, you don't see that. In fact, as we get into the text this morning, what you're going to see is that God doesn't use the, the, the strength of his king as much as the, he gives strength through people to his king. Um, notice, uh, it comes kind of out of 1 Samuel 22. This is the start of David's, in a sense, David's mighty men. In 1 Samuel 22, verse 1, it says, David departed from there. He's escaping from Saul, and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. Now, if you were trying to form an army, would you say, hey, I want everyone who's in debt. Come join me, you know. (laughs) I want everyone who's bitter, No, you, you would say, I need some strong men, I need some, some you know, some, some fast men, some, some, some men that can just handle anything physically that comes their way, but he's like, no, everyone who's in distress, everyone who's kind of like, life is not going very well, yeah, come join me. And, but that's the start, and it says that he became commander over them, and there were with him about 400 men. And within those 400 men, there's about 30 that distinguish themselves. And David, in a sense, these 30 men, although soon it becomes a number that's not exactly 30 as we'll see, but it's kind of this, this group of men that, that are maybe his bodyguard ultimately, or his just men that, that distinguish themselves. They're like, these are the men that really everyone else looks to, but they were all looking to David. And you get this idea of, of the fact that David's faith and David's um, trust in God rubs off on them, and that's what we see in 1 Samuel 21. And we're just going to kind of go through the stories here that are, that are mentioned, and then we'll think through the lessons. And I can't, you, there's several lessons that I can't cover, but the main ones that I want to cover. So 1 Samuel 21, starting in verse 16. 15, sorry. There was war again between the Philistines and Israel, and David went de- down together with his servants, and they, brought, they fought against the Philistines, and David grew weary. And Ishbibenob, one of the descendants of the giants, whose spear weighed 300 shekels of bronze, and who was armed with a new sword, thought to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, came to his aid and attacked the Philistine and killed him. Then David's men swore to him, You shall no longer go out with us to battle, lest you quench the lamp of Israel." So here's the first story in a sense of David's strength, and it's not about David's strength, it's about his weakness. And it's hard to know, is this when David's a little older and he's just, you know, he's just not able to handle it? Or the other possibility really is that, that David's just, he's been king for a while, he's handling kingly duties and the physical, you know, to be in shape, you know, to take on hand-to-hand combat and to be king at the same time. They don't often go together, right? We, we understand that from the Olympics, right? Like you think, when I was a kid, I thought, oh, I could do some of those things, you know? And if you devote years to your life, you probably could. But if you don't devote years to your life, now I'm not going to the Olympics. You know, it's just part of who I am now is I'm never going to be an Olympian. You know, that's just the way it is. Why? Because of the, the, the time it takes and the effort it takes. And to be a warrior it took a lot of time and energy and training. And it's not like David didn't have the, the skill, but he could have gotten out of shape to an extent, right? And we don't, we don't know exactly why. But they're like, hey, you know, 
you're more important to us than winning any particular battle. And so this giant who thought he was going to kill David, uh, Abishai steps in and helps David out with that. Again, you see another story here. After this, there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai the Hushathite struck down Saph, who was one of the descendants of the giants. And there was again war with the Philistines at Gob. And Helmon, the son of Jer Oregon, the Bethlehemite, struck down Goliath, the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And again, there was war at Gath. Again, there was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number. And he also was descended from the giants. And when he taunted Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother, struck him down. So David's nephew struck, struck the giant down. These four were descended from the giants in Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. What you see here is just these, these giants that are left over among the Philistines that everybody feared. And not we, we know how David killed Goliath, but here's other, other men who are maybe not quite as intimidating, but who... The men of David struck down as well. So then jump over to 1 Samuel 23 and verse 8. 1 Samuel 23 and verse 8. These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Josh, Joshab, and how do you even say that? Atakvanite, yes. He was chief of the three. He wielded his spear against 800 whom he killed at one time. And next to him, among the three mighty men, was Eliezer, the son of Dodo, the son of Ohogi. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. And the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary, and his son hand clung to his sword. And David brought, and the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And the men returned after him only to strip the slain. So in this story, is this David's David and his men were were fighting the Philistines. The, the rest of the men were like, hey, I think we need to retreat. They retreated, but this guy's like, nope, I'm fighting. I'm staying. And he says he, he took his sword and he fought with his sword until his, he fought so long that he couldn't let his sword go, right? His, his, basically, his hand is cramped around the hilt of his sword, and he, and he just keeps fighting and fighting, like, and he, you know, and when he's done, when the men come back, there's nobody else left to fight. It's pretty, you know, to, to my mind, I think of, you know, like scenes from, you know, different, different movies, right? Where it's supposed to like uh, The Matrix, right? Where you're like moving, moving so fast, you're killing everybody or something like that. I don't know exactly how it happened, but he's, he just, but the point here is he's, he just, he stuck to it. He endured even the face of tremendous odds. Next to him was Shammah, the son of Agi, the Herorite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils. And the men fled for the Philistines. And he took a stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And again, the Lord worked a great victory. And the three of the chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam, when a band of Philistines was encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold, and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, Oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. So here, here's the scenario, right? David is, is still in that cave of Adullam. There's, you know, there's, he's still hiding out from Saul. And not only is he hiding out from Saul, but the Philistines have put a garrison in Bethlehem, his hometown, so he can't sneak home whenever he wants to. 
Not only that, but it's, you know, it's that, about that time, harvest time, where you're just kind of remembering, right? Fall is a great time for thinking back and thinking about all those, you know, great memories in life you have. And, uh, and one of those, you know, it's, it's funny how memories are triggered, not just by, like, oh, festivals, but it's something as simple as getting a good drink of water, you know? I've been a lot of places, and maybe you're not from here, but if you're from here, you think Ames water is great. You do, and it might not be the greatest, but you think, man, this is good water, you know, and that's what David thought about the well at Bethlehem, is the water that he grew up with, the water that he just enjoyed, and he's like, man, I wish I could drink from there, and I can't. Now, these three mighty men hear that statement, and what do they do? This is then the, the mighty men, three mighty men, just the, so the three of them broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it back to David. You know, can you, no, that's one sentence, but can you imagine everything that went into that sentence, right? Those three guys are like, hey, uh, let's try to sneak in. But evidently they didn't get all the way in before sneaking through, but hey, there's three, you know, there's three Israelites over here. And so they get, you know, they have to break through, they have to fight off the Philistines, and while they're fighting off, they're like, hey, you, you lower that down the bucket into the well, we'll fight the rest of the guys off, and then, oh, bring it back up, hurry, okay, we got the cup, you know, I don't, I don't know how, they don't have lids back then, I wonder how they did it, but okay, they got it, and they keep fighting, well, okay, let's go, let's go, and they, and the Philistines probably left wondering, uh, they, they came and they attacked us for a drink from the well, what? Three guys? What was the point of that? Right? But they bring it back to David because of what he said, and it says here, but he would not drink it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. But he poured it out to God. So he's like, man, this is so valuable. I can't take it for myself. This is, this is so honoring that they would risk their lives for me just for a simple whim that I had, just a little comment about the water of Bethlehem. But they're willing to do that. I'm not willing to drink it because this is too honorable. And he pours it to God, honoring the men who did it. He keeps going here with the stories. Now Abishai, the brother of Joab, the son of Zeruiah, was chief of the thirty, and he wielded his spear against three hundred men and killed them and won a name beside the three. He was the most renowned of the thirty and became their commander, but he did not attain to the three. And so you get a sense of their command structure there. And Benaiah, the son of Jehoiada, was a valiant man of Kabzeel, a doer of great deeds. He struck down two aerials of Moab, probably something like two, two companies of Moab. He also went down and struck down a lion in a pit on a day when snow had fallen. Now, this guy somewhat has a death wish, right? Why would you go down into a pit when it snowed on the ground and like, I'm going to take on this lion? Yeah, that's a, that's a, that's a good idea. But he, he, he's like, it's got to be done. I did it. He struck down an Egyptian and a handsome man. To me, this is kind of like an inside joke, you know? You know how guys get a little bit when they're telling stories and they're like, oh yeah, Benaiah, he's so ugly. He got so mad at this Egyptian who was handsome that he said, I'm going to take him out. You know, like who cares if the guy's handsome or not? But, uh, but he, was against God, he was against God, obviously against David. The Egyptian had a spear in his hand, but Benaiah went down to him with a staff, snatched the spear out of the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. 
These things did Benaiah the son of Jehoiada, and won a name beside the three mighty men. He was renowned among the three, but he did not attain to the three, and David set him over his bodyguard. And then he lists the names that are there. You can read them. I'm just going to highlight the last one. Verse 39, Uriah the Hittite, 37 in all. So, so even amongst this story of these, of these mighty men of David, Uriah is one of those men. And again, David betrayed Uriah. So there's this, this, again, this sense of, yes, this, God has given us his king, but we're still looking for the true king. It's not perfect yet. But what, so we have these stories, and what do we, what do we learn from these stories? It's, it, obviously, it's about war, but these men, you think about it, these men fought to protect David when no one else was going to protect David. They, they fought to protect Israel when Saul was concerned with protecting his own power. They, they fought to, to get rid of the enemies of God. And so, so there's, there's the sense of they're, they're ready to take on and take on hard things. So there's three lessons that I want to point out from these things. First of all, that God provides people to give victory to the king. God provides people to give victory to the king. This is, uh, again, this is maybe counterintuitive. You would think, okay, the king, if, if he's supposed to be this great guy, then he's going to be the superhuman guy. He's going to be the, the one that fights off the 800, the, the 300, the, all these different such great odds. But the only time that we ever see David personally taking on great odds, in a sense, is against Goliath, right? But God gives people to David to give victory to the king. And that's just an interesting point to think about when you come and you think about who Jesus is and the victories that he is winning. It reminds me of John 6, verse 37, where it says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Jesus, in a sense, is saying, hey, God is going to give me people. Uh, I'm going to be this king, but he is going to give me people. And my job is to protect them. My job is to keep them. But, but they're part of what I'm winning. They're part of what I'm accomplishing it's similar to 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 and 20. It says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. The emphasis here is on the fact that this is what it means to shepherd. This is why in the Old Testament, the idea of shepherding and the idea of kingship are linked. It's because we, sometimes we think, well, kings, they're all about their own glory. They're all about their own power. They're all about their own victories. And you look at kings back in, in those times, and you, even archaeologically, you see, you know, this king, he's got this big, huge stele, thing that with it all written about how he had this great victory and all the things that he accomplished. And it's all about him. But a shepherd king is not like that. A shepherd king is about the people that he's shepherding. He's about protecting the sheep. 
And this, this happens because God is, he's like, I'm this king, but my, my point is to shepherd and pro- protect and provide for the people that God gives me. And those people help m- win me the victory. They, they're actually, in a sense, they are the victory. In Luke chapter 10, Jesus had sent out 72, right, ahead of, ahead of him to go into different towns as Jesus is heading toward Jerusalem. And it says, the 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you nevertheless do not rejoice in this that the spirits are subject to you but rejoice that your names are written in heaven in that same hour he rejoiced in the holy spirit and said i thank you father lord of heaven and earth that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children yes father for such was your gracious will God gives strength to his king by giving him people. And those people both win victories, but they, in a sense, they are the victory too. He's like, hey, don't rejoice that, that you can do such great things. That's not what the kingdom of heaven is really about. The kingdom of heaven is that you're, rejoice that your name is written in the, and you're on your way to heaven. You have that assurance, that hope that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. You rejoice that, as Jesus rejoices, that you reveal this not to those who are smart and powerful, but you reveal the, these things to little children who just like, I, I don't understand everything, but this is the one thing I do understand. It reminds us to what we should pray for, right? When we think about victory in, for the kingdom of God, and we think about victory and, and, and what's important to that victory, again, Jesus reminded his disciples earlier in Luke chapter 10, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. So the king is not about great physical strength. He's not about how many physical battles he can win, although obviously David had to win those battles. But David is about the people that he can protect and care for, the people that he can love, they can serve. And in some ways, when you get to Matthew 20, Matthew, right, the Gospel of Matthew is all about who is the king and what are his commands. And you get to the end of Matthew and it says, go therefore and make disciples of all nations. That is a very kingdom of God king command to make. Does that make sense? It, like, it shows off that, yes, this is, this is the king because you know what? He's concerned not with, hey, okay, you're, you're my followers, go take over all the, all the nations of the world and make sure that all the governments are Christian. He doesn't say that. He doesn't say, go and make sure that, that, uh, that you set up these, these enclaves where people from all over the world can come and you can just be, you can be all together. He says, go and make disciples. Find my sheep. Right? John 21. Talking to Peter. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? 
feed my sheep. Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Our king is not about great political victories, nor is he about great physical strength. Our king is about the people that he loves, that he is rescuing from sin and death. And because that's true, there's another lesson I want to point out. The king accomplishes what Israel cannot because he trusts in God. This is really from the first, the, the first part of that lesson. There's all about the, uh, the first part of the stories there are all about um, the David and his men fighting the Philistines. You realize, right, this goes back to, you know, Saul and you know, they're frozen in fear when this giant comes out, just one giant, comes out and is like, hey, send out your champion, fight me, and whoever wins, you know, will be their slaves, right? And in, in, that, in that battle, right, all the men are shaking in fear. Nobody wants to go out and fight Goliath. You see, at, at that point in Israel's history, they were kind of like, you know, hopefully the king can take care of it. But if not, you know, what we have a we have a pretty good deal here. We're we're, we're at least somewhat protected. We have our own we have our own people. We have our own nation. But you know, we're not going to worry about the, the the fact that we're, God told us to drive out the Philistines and drive out the inhabitants of the land. We're we're, we're kind of we're both either afraid of them or we're kind of comfortable where we're at. And they had stopped doing what God had told them to do. They had stopped being the people that God wanted them to be, to drive out the enemies of God. And they were driving out those enemies because of their sin that God had told them to do, but still, they had gotten comfortable or they were afraid of doing that, but David was not afraid of doing that. And his men were not afraid either, and that's the point, is that they were willing to fight the giants and in, 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 defeat their enemies even that when Israel was not you know what in some ways we're all pretty comfortable with death I was walking into the library yesterday and I was there's a guy walking out he had this black shirt on and it was like something I can't remember exactly what it said but basically death is uh uh, coming or death is inevitable something like that you know something where the point is is that you know no one escapes death and i was like well that's pretty morbid you know what i mean but it's also true right nothing escapes death and, and sometimes we're just comfortable we're just we kind of like well okay, that's the way life is what's the point i mean why are you talking about it even i don't even want to talk about it because it's, it's kind of uncomfortable to think about but but jesus is like no Death is not inevitable. And he conquered death for us. And Paul reminds us in Ephesians 6, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's who we're up against. We're not against the people out there. We're not up against governments. We're not up against... We're up against things that literally we cannot fight on our own, right? But we have the victory because of Jesus Christ. Hebrews 12 puts it this way, 
Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Why? Looking to Jesus, the author, the finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down at the right hand of the throne of God, right? Our king didn't just look at the, the, the enemies of our world and was like, oh, there's not a lot I can do about them. But he, went to, he took on death by dying in our place. He took our shame by dying on the cross. He blazed that path for us. And, and the question is, is that, again, we're kind of back to that, kind of that basic question is, do you want that king? Do you want to follow that king? What kind of king do you want in your life? Because you're always submitting to some king. It can be the king of comfort, like, hey, just make sure everything's comfortable and I'm happy. Or it could be the king of, of achievement. Hey, you know what? I just want to accomplish something great with my life, and I'm going to make sure that nothing stands in my way before I accomplish something great. Or it could be the, the, the king of you know, money, like, I've just got to make a lot of money. This is the king who said, those things kill but I can give life. The last lesson that I think is here is that God honors those who are loyally courageous for the king. God honors those who are loyally courageous for the king. Here's, again, we're going back to this idea that strength isn't about your own personal strength, or the, the strength of the king. Here's an interesting thing to think about. John 14, 12 says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Uh, Jesus, wait a second. You're God, you're, you're the king, and, and you're saying that your followers are going to do greater works than you did? But, but isn't that the point of David's men in some ways, right? Is they did, they fought greater battles in some ways than David did. But they, they couldn't fight those battles without David being king. Without David being the one who's, who's worth fighting for. And when we think about that, I have to ask the question is, what are you literally living for? What you, this world is a scary place, I get it. You know, when you're young, you're scared about, you know, what job you're going to get, who you're going to marry, how's that going to work out. As you get older, you, you get worried about how your kids are going to turn out, or are you going to have enough money for retirement, or, uh, you know, is, is your job really secure, or, no, no, what are you going to do when you retire? Um, how, how, how long is your health going to hold out? All of those are fears, right? They're, they're scary to think about. But courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is the ability to do what is right, even though you're afraid. 
And here he's saying, look, I'm going to give you as my followers, as my disciples, opportunities to do greater works than I did. It reminds me of 1 Corinthians 9. It says, don't you know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but I do it to receive an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one that beats the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. If you've watched the Olympics this week, you've watched two weeks of athletes who've been disciplined, who've been self-controlled, who've done what it took to win or get close to winning. Frankly, anyone who is an Olympian is already a winner, right, in some ways, because they got, they got that far. What are we doing as Christians? We say we have a king, and we say we have a king that's worth following, but, but are we going for the prize of what he's called us to? Are we concerned at all about the people that he... he you know, again, if, if people are a crown of joy, are we concerned about the people that we're with? James 1.12 says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. There is, God honors those who courageously do what he calls them to do. Now, you might not have to fight a battle, hopefully you never do, actually, that you, or you have to actually defeat 800 men on your own. And, and you might not necessarily get into these situations where, you know, look, I'm, cha- I'm changing the world. You know, most of us are called to, be, to live ordinary lives, to do ordinary things like go, get a job and take care of your family and take care of your kids and, and make sure that you are providing for them and, and, and doing good in your community and loving people and, and sharing the gospel with them. And it, does, it might just be like, well, this is ordinary, but, but you're still, the question is not so much, is it ordinary or not? The question is, what's your purpose in doing it? What's your purpose in doing it? Are you doing it for your king? Living at his commands? Or are you doing it because you're like, well, as long as I can stay comfortable, I'm okay. Or as long as I can get this, I'm okay. John Piper told this illustration back in the 2000s. A couple of lady missionaries had passed away and tragically. And he was he's saying, you, you, could, you could mourn them. But then he, he went over and he talked about a couple who he, he knew who were living in Florida and they had retired early. They, they had gotten you kind know, of the beach house and the, the, the boats. And, and what they went around and did is they went around and they, they, they drove their boat back up and down the beach and they, they collected shells. And then they would show off the shells that they collected. And his point was, look, what kind of, don't waste your life. You can, you can live your life to collect shells. And at the end, what's God going to say about that? Or you can live your life for him, what he's telling you to do. And that might mean going and being a missionary, or it might mean living in Ames, Iowa, and loving people right here. But it's, but it's what God calls you to do that's most important. So again, it's back to what's the purpose? 
Why are you doing what you're doing? God honors those who courageously live for him. We're, we're a community. You say, why do we as a church exist? We exist because God has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, this church exists because in 1936, a, a group of people believed that God, God, that we needed the Bible to be preached and shared and taught clearly because it wasn't happening in the community, and so they started a Bible study and it turned into a church. But that was 1936, this is 2021. It's this, God is at work. It, God was at work in 1936, he's at work now. And he's calling out a people to his name. He's, the king is still the king, and he's rescuing people from sin and death. And the question is, is that what are we doing here? We need to be, just like if we're following our king, we need to be reaching aims to, to reach the world, right? That's what we're about. People come from all over the world to Ames. We share the gospel with them, and some of them go back all over the world. And we use the word of God to help people understand how to follow Jesus wherever they go. That's why we exist. The question is, is will we loyally courageous to do it? The ironic thing, going back to 1 Thessalonians 2, where it talks about you are our crown of joy. It, the ironic thing here is, it's, is you get more crowns, in a sense, when you're with people that are sinners. When you're with people who are difficult. When you're with people who, are, who aren't easy to get along with sometimes. Why? Because, because that's when we get to love people the most, is when they're difficult at times, Right? You should look around and think two things. One, it's amazing that God is calling out a people to his name, even here in Ames, Iowa in 2021. And the second one is, there's a lot of people that are different from me, and that's great, because then I get to love people more, and I get more reward in heaven. Because you are my crown and joy, just as I am yours. We get together to show off the greatness of who God is and the greatness of Christ's victory over sin and death. You realize that most people live their lives thinking, okay, I'm going to live my life and hopefully I can find some meaning and purpose in life and, and maybe I can do some good in this life, but then I'm going to die and, and I don't know what happens after that. They don't have a lot of hope. They don't have a lot of purpose. But Christ came and he died on a cross in our place to rescue us from death and to give us eternal life. And yes, there are people all over Ames, Story County, Iowa, that haven't heard the hope that we have in Christ. The question is, will we be loyally courageous wherever we're at to live for Jesus, to follow Jesus, to pursue sharing about Jesus. So, you are Christ's joy, his crown. Do you realize that? 
You say, well, I'm, I'm nobody. I'm just, I grew up in Iowa. I just, I'm not probably not going to, you know, I'm not going to do anything too special, you know, just live my, no. Christ died on that cross for you because he wanted to rescue you from sin and death. He did something no one else could do by trusting his father, going to the cross, and dying in our place. And have you, do you believe that? Have you accepted that for yourself? Because it's not something that just automatically is transferred to you. You have to, you have to receive it. And you receive it simply by asking for it. It's like a gift. Romans 10, 13 says, For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Just ask. Have you asked? And if you have asked, what are you doing here? What are you living for? There are people all over Amos, all over Iowa, that need to know about Jesus. They need to know the, the victory that he has won. And God gives strength and victory because he has called you out of darkness into light. And he wants to use you to help more people know about Jesus. Will you be involved in that? Now, it might, you're like, well, how can I do that? Again, just talk to one of us. We can help you think it through. It's, sometimes it's not always easy to figure it out. But God always has a plan. <laughs> for how you can help love others and share the gospel with them. So will you do it? There is a crown of life for those who are looking forward to the king's return. Let's do this together. Heavenly Father, Lord, you have called us as a church to be here to reach Ames, to reach the world. And there's so many opportunities and sometimes we get caught up in, well, there's nothing I can do, or look how, how far the world's falling apart, or I'm just comfortable where I'm at. And we forget the greatness of your victory. We forget that God is at work in our world, and his will will be accomplished. Help us to be doing what Christ wants us to do. Living for his return. In your son's name, amen.